0: In our previous session, we argued that this is a critically important doctrine because if the Bible is not infallible, then our faith is ultimately based on subjectivism. We close by quoting from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which says in part that, quote, recognition of the total truth and trustworthiness of Holy Scripture is essential to a full grasp and adequate confession of its
1: authority, end quote.
0: Dr. Spencer, what would you like to add to that?
1: I mentioned last time that the authority and infallibility of the Bible are inextricably linked, and you see that point clearly in the sentence you just quoted from the Chicago Statement. Notice that they link a recognition of the total truth and trustworthiness of the Bible, in other words, our believing that it's infallible, to a full grasp and adequate confession of its authority. By adequate confession, I think they mean one that is conducive to living a proper Christian life. I would like to begin, therefore, by more forcefully making the point that the authority and infallibility of the Bible are inextricably linked.
0: Okay, please do.
1: Well, if the Bible is infallible, then it logically follows that it is inerrant, simply meaning that it does not have errors in it.
0: Now, when you say it doesn't contain any errors, I think it's important to note again that you're talking about the autographs.
1: Yeah, sure I am. Our copies can obviously contain printing errors, poor translations, and even, in a few cases, small errors caused by errors in the manuscripts we have available.
0: But none of these small errors in any way affect any doctrine of biblical Christianity.
1: No, no, they don't. And that's an important point. In fact, with regard to these small errors, James Boyce points out that, quote, Due to the extraordinary number and variety of the biblical manuscripts, there is no reason to doubt that today's text is identical to the original text in all but a few places, and these few problem areas are clearly known to commentators, end quote, Which agrees with what we said last time regarding the number and quality of our existing manuscripts.
0: Okay, but I think we've gotten off topic just a bit. You said if the Bible is infallible, then it logically follows that it's going to
1: be inerrant. What were you going to say next? I was going to say that the only alternative to the Bible being inerrant is that it does, in fact, contain errors. And if the Bible contained errors, it would logically follow that not everything in it would have authority, because not everything in it would be from God, from whom all authority comes. That would leave us with the horrible problem of deciding for ourselves which parts of the Bible have authority and which don't. And you can easily guess what would happen. Yeah, I can think of a number of things. Uh, So can I, but let me give one concrete example to illustrate the seriousness of the problem. Suppose that a man named John was extremely unhappy in his marriage and was convinced that he had done everything possible on his end to work the problems out. Further suppose that his wife had not committed adultery. Their problems were just relational. What do you think he would decide about Jesus' statement in Matthew 5, verse 32, where he says, quote, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, end quote, which implies that divorcing a wife for any reason other than adultery is sin. Do you think John would conclude that he can't divorce his wife, or would he conclude that statement was some kind of error? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you would conclude that Jesus didn't really say that. I think you're right. In other words, he might say that the Bible has authority to govern his life, but he would then completely eviscerate that authority by concluding that anything in the Bible that opposes his own view is in error. That would be the natural sinful human tendency. Yeah, in other words, if the entire Bible was not the authoritative word of God, then none of it would really have any authority because we would have to decide which parts have authority. And our natural sinful tendency would be to say that the parts we agree with have authority and the parts we don't agree with do not have authority. In other words, I am the ultimate authority. We see this all the time when people argue that you can be a Christian and divorce your spouse for irreconcilable differences or be a Christian homosexual or any number of other examples we could name. But it is not biblical Christianity and therefore it is not a Christianity that will save you from hell. It is no better than any other man-made religion. If I'm a true, born-again Christian, then I must accept the entire Word of God as His infallible, authoritative Word. Are you
0: saying that if someone doesn't
1: agree with this doctrine that they're not a true Christian? I don't think I would go that far, but I would argue that they do agree with it even if they are not yet aware of that fact. When a person is first born again and exercises true saving faith, that faith is not mature and you wouldn't expect that they have had time and opportunity to think it all through carefully. And if they don't receive good sound teaching, it may take a while for them to do so. But when we believe something to be true, that necessarily requires that we have determined there is sufficient reason to accept it as true. And the Bible is the only source of our knowledge that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. So if a person has truly placed his trust in Jesus Christ and is saved— That means that he has judged the Bible to be trustworthy. And if he thinks that through carefully, which is what we're trying to help people do now, he will realize that the only consistent position is to believe that the entire Bible is infallible. The theologian John Murray makes that point. He
0: even goes so far as to say that one aspect of biblical faith is, "...our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of Scripture as the Word of God." and that this is inseparable from
1: a state of salvation. And I would agree. But I think that is an expression of a mature faith that has been thought through. So if one of our listeners does not agree with this doctrine, it may be that he is truly saved, but has not yet thought this all through carefully. And if that's the case, I hope and pray that our discussion of this material will result in his giving the topic careful consideration. Because it is the clear teaching of the Bible itself that it is the infallible Word of God, as we will demonstrate in later sessions. So if I find myself disagreeing with it on this doctrine or any other doctrine, I am the one who needs to change. The problem is with me, not the Bible. Of course, that presupposes that we understand the Bible correctly. Of course it does. And we will talk about that issue more later as well. But for now, I want to move on and make the case for the importance of the doctrine of the infallibility of the Bible. Let me begin by noting that the Westminster Confession of Faith recognizes the central importance of the Word of God, and that it receives its importance, and we could add its infallibility and authority, from the fact that God is its author. In chapter 1, paragraph 4 of the Confession, we read that, quote, "...the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God." who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God, When they say it is to be received, I think they mean it's to be believed and obeyed. But they were also indicating that they were simply receiving the revelation from God, not passing judgment on it as being correct.
0: Which would, of course, make man the ultimate authority and not God.
1: That's right. As we've discussed before, we must use our reason to recognize and understand the Word of God, but not to judge it. The theologian R. C. Sproul, in his Layman's Guide to the Westminster Confession of Faith, commented on the use of the word receive in this phrase in the Confession. And he wrote that, quote, When the early Church settled on the books of the canon, it spoke of receiving these books as canonical. The Church Fathers were humbly recognizing the authority of these books not presuming to give them authority when they stated we receive these apostolic writings as sacred scriptures. The authority of scripture does not depend on the testimony of any man or of the church. Its authority depends and rests wholly on God, the supreme author of the Bible. Scripture should be received not so that it can become the word of God, but because it already is the word of God.
0: That is a very clear statement of the distinction between receiving the Word and judging the Word. I think it's also important to point out that the statement you read is in chapter 1 of the Confession of Faith. So the Westminster Confession of Faith
1: begins with the Word of God. That is an important point. The Confession begins with the Word of God because it is only in the Word of God that we learn what God wants us to believe and how we are to be saved.
0: The Westminster Confession was also responding to the Roman Catholic Church that placed the traditions of the Church on a par with Scripture.
1: Yeah, That's true. The Council of Trent was an ecumenical council of the Roman Catholic Church and was called in response to the Reformation, which most people mark as having begun with Martin Luther's nailing his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Church door on October thirty-first, 1517. In the Council of Trent the Roman Catholic Church officially decreed that it, quote, "...receives and venerates with an equal affection of piety and reverence all the books both of the Old and of the New Testament, as also the said traditions," unquote, which is referring to the traditions of the Church. They go even further and declare that if anyone does not receive the traditions of the Church as of equal value with the Bible itself, quote, Let him be anathema. Yeah,
0: and to be anathema means to be cursed and excommunicated from the church. In other words, to be damned.
1: That's right. The the Roman Catholic Church has never rescinded the decrees of that council. So if we do not accept the traditions of the church as of equal authority with scripture, we are, according to the Roman Catholic Church, damned to hell. The problem with that view is that it's giving the church the power to declare something with the same authority as God himself and the Reformers were united in their condemnation of that view. This issue of the absolute and sole authority of the Scripture has been called the formal cause of the Reformation, and it is voiced in the famous Latin phrase, sola scriptura, which means Scripture alone. But the Reformers didn't simply throw away all the traditions of the Church. No, they did not. In fact, the Reformers embraced those traditions when they were consistent with the teachings of the Bible, R.C. Sproul, in his book, What is Reformed Theology, says that, quote, The Reformers embraced the doctrines articulated and formulated by the great ecumenical councils of church history, including the doctrine of the Trinity and of Christ's person and work formulated at the councils of Nicaea in 325 and Chalcedon in 451, end quote. The Reformers were returning to the word of God as the supreme authority and were testing everything according to it.
0: That reminds me of what we're told in Acts
1: chapter 17.
0: Paul and Silas had been preaching about Christ in Berea and we're told in Acts 17 verse 11 that the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures
1: every day to see if what Paul said was true. Yeah, that's a great passage to make this point. The Bereans were commended by God himself for testing what the Apostle Paul told them by looking in the word of God. In Paul's closing comments to the church in Thessalonica, he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 20 and 21, Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good, Unquote. And while he doesn't say it here, it's clear that he would have them test everything by the word of God, since that is what he labors to do in every one of his letters.
0: And so, getting back to the Westminster Confession of Faith, they chose to begin by declaring that the Bible alone has absolute
1: authority. That's right. In addition to the passage we read earlier from chapter 1, paragraph 4, it might be worthwhile to give one more quote, which clearly shows that what you just said is true the Confession clearly does state that the Bible alone has absolute authority. Chapter 1 concludes with the following statement in paragraph 10, quote, "...the Supreme Judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of counsels, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture." When the Confession says, in whose sentence we are to rest, it's using the word sentence in the sense of a judicial finding or a judgment. In other words, we are to use the Bible as the ultimate authority in judging everything, and we are to rest in its judgment. Well, I know that we're going to have more to say on this topic, but this
0: seems like a good place to stop for today. I'd like to remind our listeners that they can email their questions and comments to whatdoesthewordsay.org. We'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say? Brought to you by Grace and Glory Media, and I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine the doctrine of the infallibility of the Bible, and we hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Reverend P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary on the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.